Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to uh, enable us to make sure we're walking by the Spirit, that uh, make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord, and that we can therefore uh, use this time for eternity and not just for today. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful that we have this time to get together, that we live in a nation that still has the freedom to proclaim the truth of your word, still has the freedom to proclaim the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and that by believing in him alone, we have eternal life, that its salvation is by faith alone. Father, we're thankful for your word that when we are Regenerate when we become new creatures in Christ. We are not left like uh, newborn babes, but we have your word to feed on and that it nourishes us and strengthens us and it gives us the focus we need to make it through the, the challenges of life. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, you will open our eyes to the truth of your word to see the principles that are in the scripture, that they may be applied to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 5, 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we're going to uh, continue uh, continue our study. One question I got, I don't remember where I made this statement in class, whether it was last Sunday night, Tuesday night or Thursday night, but sometime last week I did get one question that came in uh, live streaming, and then I had somebody in the congregation ask me. I had made a statement last week about the fact that in the future, that we're not going to remember what is what has taken place in this life. And that was sort of a new thought for a lot of people. And I thought, well, I know I've taught that before, but it is uh, uh, only in one verse that I know of where that is stated. Now, it's implied in Revelation chapter 21 that there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain for the old things have passed away. That's after the millennial kingdom. That's in eternity. And the, that indicates that the, that a lot of the regrets, a lot of the things that happened in this life won't be remembered. They won't be any kind of source of heartache or remorse or guilt or anything like that in, in eternity. But in the Old Testament, there's a promise given to Israel in Isaiah 65:17, where God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And that also indicates that there will be, uh, that, that all of the evil, all of the pain, all of the heartache, everything that went on in this life is not going to be, uh, be remembered. Now, how that happens, don't ask me. I do not have God in front of my name. So I don't know how he's going to do that, but we are going to still have our identities and we will know the people we know. So I don't know how that's going to work out. Last time I titled the lesson, What Happens When God, when, when it seems that God has failed. And tonight it's that God never fails. It only appears to us in terms of our finite understanding because we expect God to do one thing and something else happens and then we're disappointed. And sometimes it's so serious in our lives that what happens is people react 
and they become bitter and angry towards God only because they have assumed that God is going to perform according to their plans, their desires, and their wishes. And the world is filled uh, with, with people like that. And Israel at this time is in a situation like that. God has been captured. The ark has been taken by the enemy, by the Philistines. And in that culture, if that happens, that means you're not only been defeated militarily and culturally, but in terms of Israel's hope in God and Yahweh as the living God, they've just been devastated. Their whole the whole foundation for their existence is having been called by the creator God, the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. This God is vanquished. So they go into a period of about 20 years of darkness as God is taking them into a time of judgment. But all of this is preparatory, and that's what I want you to remember as we look at this. God is giving us an overview of how he is working through history to bring about this true reformation within the nation, and it takes time. And just as we look back on the time in uh, Israel's history, the time of the judges, uh, it took time to turn things around, and it's certainly going to take time to turn things around in this nation. We didn't get where we are in one presidential term or two presidential terms. It's been coming on for the last 110 to 120 years. God is may have to take us through some very dark times as a nation that if we're going to survive as, as a nation that we may have to go through to turn things around and to deal with the evil that has come to be accepted and to permeate our culture. So in this section in chapter 5, 1 through 6, 21, we're going to see how God, Yahweh, establishes the means for delivering Israel. And remember the time frame. I keep going back to this. This is still the period of the judges. Eli, who just died because he heard that the ark was captured, is the last, actually he's not the last judge. Samuel's the last judge in the period of the judges. Eli was also a judge. This is near the end. It's probably about uh, just a few years uh, if, if, if that, from the time that Samson destroys the temple of Dagon uh, in, first, uh, in, in Judges. Now, as we get into this particular text, what we've seen is the Battle of Aphek, which takes place just uh, at the base of the hill country of Samaria. The area along the coast here, the coastal plain of Canaan or Israel, is called the Shephela, and this is Joppa, and this area right here, this is really where modern uh, Tel Aviv is located, and this battle area, I've seen signs to it when we've gone along the, the interstate, as it were, and it's just right off the interstate, but it's all developed and it's all um, sort of uh, suburbs of Tel Aviv now. This is where the ark, the ark is captured, and the ark is taken, uh, taken prisoner. And now it seems as if God has been defeated, but God never fails. So we're going to see how God turns things around in uh, chapter five. 
The principle we should remember is that at times we feel that God has let us down, that God's failed, that God's defeated, that the Word of God doesn't seem to work. And I've heard this so many times from people that they, they, they'll ask me, they say, do you really believe that I can solve this problem in my life? And usually it's some sort of emotional problem or psychological problem or some area of, uh, of temptation that I can really solve this just by trusting the Bible. I don't need to go through counseling. I don't need to go through uh, all of these other things. I said, that's the promise of God. God can sustain us, and he has given us this the spiritual skills in Scripture to be able to face and handle any and every situation. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be simple. It doesn't mean that it's going to be solved just by a single prayer at night. But like we saw the other day, uh, Sunday morning with the casting out of the demon from that um, <clears throat> boy who was uh, having seizures in, in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 17 is it takes faith, and we have to learn to trust trust in God. And so God is showing here, uh, to, he's teaching both the Philistines and the Israelites that he is in charge, and there's no situation, no matter how much it appears to overwhelm God, there's no problem, there's no difficulty, there's no situation that's too great for the word of God and that he is the one who will provide the solution, and his solution is the only permanent solution, because ultimately I believe that the Bible teaches that all of our personal problems, all of our problems that relate to what we classify today as emotional problems or psychological problems, behavior problems, are all traced back to the sin nature. We live in a corrupt body that too often has been controlled habitually by this body of sin, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6, and we are to learn how to put to death the deeds of of the flesh. So the principles that we see here, the the warfare uh, events that we see in the Old Testament, often are pictures for us of principles related to our individual spiritual warfare when we get into various New Testament passages. So what we see here in these first five verses is that uh, that God is showing that he is superior to all cultures and all religious systems and all uh, political systems. And in 1 Samuel 5, 1 and 2, we read, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So the first thing we see here, and I covered this a little bit last week, just a reminder of who the Philistines are. This was an ancient group that's described in ancient texts as the Sea Peoples. It's de- they're described by that way from uh, by the Egyptians. They came from the area of Crete and Kaftor. They had a combination of Hamitic background plus some influence from uh, from the Greeks. And they initially came to the area of Canaan after being defeated by the Egyptians. In the period uh, just prior to the time of Abraham, they tried to, to set up colonies along the coast 
of Egypt on the Mediterranean and were defeated by the Egyptians. And so they went further east to the coastal plain of Canaan. And so there were a few points of contact between Abraham and Isaac and Abimelech and the uh, Philistines at that time. But by the time we get into the period of of the book of Samuel, we've gone from the time of Abraham, which is 2000 BC, to the time of of the uh, of the um, uh, of Samuel, which is about 1100 BC. So we're we're 900 years later, and by this time, the Philistines are well established in that territory that was known uh, that was known as Canaan. There have been a number of conflicts with Israel and the Philistines. In fact, Shamgar defeated them. He's raised up by God to defeat them in Judges 3.31. Samson was raised up uh, to be a deliverer, but he failed because he's never obedient. Uh, he's never obedient to the Lord. He disobeyed every categorically every aspect of his Nazarite vow, but God used him in spite of his disobedience, in spite of his carnality, in order to just cause trouble, to, to keep things stirred up between the, the, uh, Israelites and the Philistines. Otherwise, the Israelites in their, in their, uh, disobedience to God would have just accepted the religious system of the Philistines. They would have just absorbed it and assimilated. And that's sort of been a trend off and on through the history of, uh, of the Jewish people. This, this tendency we saw it with the sons of, J- of Jacob, uh, back in Genesis when they settled in Shechem. And they were intermarrying with the Canaanites, which was a violation of God's command. We, we see it again and again in the period of the judges. We'll see it later, uh, when they come back from, uh, you think they'd learned their lesson after the Babylonian captivity, but when they come back from Babylon, they start intermarrying with the people who are settled in the land and, uh, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they had to enforce uh, a divorce decree so that they the men would divorce the Canaanite women otherwise it would just lead to to a point where the uh, Israelites would just be completely absorbed and assimilated into that pagan culture and they would disappear and it happened again in it's happened in modern times under a very strict Jewish orthodoxy they were uh, isolated often because of of Christian anti-Semitism, which is terribly wrong, but it isolated them, which protected them during much of the of the early and middle part of the church age. But once they began to move out of the ghettos and out of the towns with what was known as the Halaska, the Jewish enlightenment that began in the middle part of the 19th century, they began to assimilate again, and they began to think of themselves first as Germans or as French or as as uh, Russians or as Italians or Brits, uh, and and so they, they they began to be absorbed again. This ultimately gave rise to an anti-Semitic backlash, which was seen in the Dreyfus trial in France, and that led to Theodore uh, um, Theodore Herzl realizing that that there was never going to be a successful assimilation, that the only hope for Israel's survival was for them to have a national homeland and to go back to their national homeland, and that was the birth uh, of modern uh, Jewish Zionism. 
And so you've always had this kind of problem with assimilation. Samson was stirring up trouble, so that didn't happen. And then another thing that happens with the Philistines, they place the Ark of God in the Dagon Temple, which is uh, in Ashkelon, but it was the Temple uh, of Dagon uh, down in Gaza that's the one that, that uh, Samson destroyed. And then we realize the Philistines aren't finally defeated they're not wiped out, but they are defeated militarily, and they're no longer a significant problem for Israel uh, by the end of David's life. Uh, they kept them under they, uh, the Philistines kept Israel under um, under control by limiting their access to armament. This is a great verse today in terms of all the talk related to gun control is to realize the way tyrants control people is to limit their access to weapons. And the Philistines enacted this kind of policy in the ancient world, and they wouldn't let uh, the Israelites uh, have iron. They wouldn't let them have blacksmiths so they couldn't make swords or spears. So we see the Philistines are taking the Ark of God now to, to Ashdod, and they are making a theological statement. They understand what's happening here religiously. Their God has defeated the God of Israel. Their God is superior to the God of Israel, and this means that that Israel is com- now completely vanquished because their God has been completely vanquished, and this means that they are set to completely defeat and dominate uh, dominate uh, Israel. In the ancient world, something that's very different from mod- the modern world is all of the governments in the a- ancient world were, their, their pol- politics were completely entwined with their uh, religious system. In Egypt, the Pharaoh was divine. In the Babylonian uh, area, um, excuse me, in the uh, in the area of the Fertile, Quesh, uh, Fertile Crescent, uh, Syria, Babylon, those areas, uh, the kings were thought to be the sons of God. And so there's this deeply embedded religious rationale for government and for power, not unlike the relationship of, of legal theory in Islam, Sharia law, to to Islam. Islam is as much a political system and a legal system as it is a religious system. And because we live in the West, it's become so secularized where people no longer understand the, uh, the, the connection between religion and, and these profoundly deep uh, political and legal ideas that they, um, that, that they can't understand what is happening with Islam and how the current mass migration of Muslims to the West is really a new form of invasion. And they understand exactly what they are doing, and their goal is to uh, establish Sharia law. And they are establishing beachheads uh, for this in numerous places in Europe. There's areas where police and uh, other law enforcement officials won't ever go, and they've just basically ceded this over to to Islamic control. So even though this is an ancient idea, it still has a modern manifestation. And so God is showing by what he does here, that he is the one who's still in control and that their God has not 
has not defeated them. So the Philistines take the ark uh, as the symbol of God's presence, of Yahweh's presence. They set it up in the temple of Dagon, who's their chief god. He is a fertility god, as we'll see. And he's considered in Canaanite mythology to be the father of Baal. Dagon, the name Dagon, is not a Philistine name. Remember the Philistines, if you go back to Genesis 10 and 11 and trace the, the, um, the, the table of nations there and the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the Jews and, uh, and the Arabs are descendants of Shem. That's why they're called Semites. Uh, Europe, Western Europeans, Europeans, Eastern Europeans are descendants of Japheth. And the Africans, Egyptians, the Philistines, Asian people are all descendants of Ham. So the, the Philistines are not a Japhetic Indo-European people. They, they absorb some, but originally they are descendants of Kaftor and they are Hamitic. So, um, they're, they're, they are, uh, <clears throat> looking at this, they, 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 I lost my train of thought there. They're Hamitic, which means that this word Dagon, which is a Semitic name, isn't a Philistine god, but one that they adopted once they came into uh, the area of Canaan. So that god was was already there. Now, the, once the ark was captured, it's taken south. Here's Ashdod down here. Today it's a little further away from the coast, but it's still a port city. And in the ancient world, it was also a port city. And like most port cities, there's a, an ethnic mix, a lot of different ideas that, that go into that mix, a lot, a lot of different religious influences, as well as a lot of, as well as a lot of, uh, uh, immorality associated with those fertility cults. And now what we see here is that as they take the ark into the temple, they are going to place the, the uh, ark in a position to indicate that, that Yahweh has now become a uh, servant, a slave, a vassal of Dagon. Dagon has defeated Yahweh. But what happens, as we'll see, is when nightfall occurs, God is perfectly capable of handling the situation. And so uh, God probably sent a few angels down there to redecorate the temple. And the next morning, early in the morning, when the, the uh, Ashdodites came in to see what was, uh, what was going on, and uh, they found that their god Dagon was down on his face in a position of Worship in a position of uh, doing homage to the God of Israel, and they were just absolutely stunned uh, by this. Now, what we know about Ashdod is that that it was uh, also one of the cities where there were still remnants of a race called the Anakim. This was an ethnic race of giants. Their descendants of the Anakim survived in Gaza and in uh, Gath, Ashkelon, Gaza, and Gath. Now, why is that important? Because there's a giant by the name of Goliath of Gath that comes along, and he is a, uh, on one side of the family, he's a descendant of the Anakim, which is why he has that, uh, that uh, giant uh, position. Now, Dagon, let's talk a little bit about Dagon. When we are looking at the Bible... 
we're studying the Bible, one of the things that's important for us to note is things like repetition, how many times words are used, how many times words are repeated or phrases are repeated. And when we get into these first five verses, uh, what we discover is Dagon is used nine times. The house of Dagon, referring to the temple of Dagon, is used two times for a total of 11 references to Dagon. The ark is mentioned six times. The phrase, the ark of the Lord, is used two times. The phrase, the ark of God, is used four times. And so this gives us uh, 12 different references to God or the ark of God. So the, the emphasis here is 11 references to Dagon and 12 references to God or Yahweh. And in five verses, that's a lot of references and what that tells us is that this is all about this conflict between Dagon and Yahweh. So obviously, that many uses shows that uh, Dagon's very, very significant here. And what the writer is bringing out is that this conflict between the Philistines and, and Israel is not simply a physical conflict, but this is part of a broader spiritual conflict that is rep- indicated by the, ang- what we call the angelic conflict, spiritual warfare, the rebellion of an angel named Lucifer, uh, in eternity past against God, described in Isaiah chapter 14, who claimed that he wanted to be like God, and he led approximately a third of the angels in rebellion against God. It's also described in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28, uh, verses 14 and following. And so this angel, Lucifer, was one of the highest angels. He's referred to as the anointed angel, the anointed cherub, who covered God. So he was, he served right at the throne of God, and he, uh, he was overcome with arrogance, desired to be like God, and so he led these angels uh, in rebellion against God, and you have this development of this angelic conflict, which is a backdrop for the creation of the human race and for spiritual warfare. So things that happen on a physical plane in human history are often influenced. Now, we don't know how, and it's not important that we know how or God would tell us. He never tells us these things. He just tells us that this is the way it is, that there is a a connection between things that happen in the physical realm and influence in the, in the spiritual realm. So that when we talk about these false gods, and whether you're talking about the false god of Allah or whether you're talking about the false god they call God the Father in Mormonism, or whether you're talking about the false gods of the Greeks or the Romans or the Babylonians or the Egyptians, these were, uh, in the ancient world, they were all represented by statues, by idols of wood or stone or precious metals. But they're not simply uh, idols of stone and wood and, and, and metal. There was something that was... Uh, evil behind them. There was a demon that was associated with them, and we get a warning of that in passages like Psalm 106, 35 to 38. Notice what the psalmist says, uh, talking about the ancient Israelites and their failure. See, they assimilated to the Canaanites. They mingled with the nations, and they learned their practices. That's why God said they needed to come out from them and be separate from them. 
and they serve their idols. Notice the parallelism that we have in the poetry here. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. So the idols are a snare in verse 36. Verse 37 tells them, tells us how they were a snare. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Now the demons are associated with those idols. So they're not just innocuous, meaningless, uh, blocks of stone or, or wood or metal. And it goes on to say they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Notice verse 37 says they sacrificed them to demons, and in verse 38 they sacrificed them to idols. The idols are those, those false religious systems were the product of Satan, satanic and demonic influence in the ancient world. Now that's not just taught in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And the whole uh, context here, 1 Corinthians 10, is dealing with, with the issue of meat that's been taken to the, to the temple and sacrificed to idols. And what Paul is saying is this isn't completely innocuous because there are demons that, that energize these false religious systems. So that's all part of representing satanic thought and demonic thought. Now, going back to an earlier passage in Deuteronomy, this is, this is Moses talking. Now, when I quoted the passage from the psalm, that was much later reflecting back on the same period. This is Moses at, right at the end of Deuteronomy, just before he dies, and he's talking about how, how the uh, Israelites, in, in, as they came out in, during the wilderness generation, how they succumbed at times to the idolatry of the Gentiles around them and what had happened to them in the past. And it says, but Yeshurun, that's a term for Israel, grew fat and kicked, that's prosperity. You've grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous, that they being Israel, made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. Then look at that, verse 17. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. Now, they didn't know that they were sacrificing to demons, but when they had Aaron build the golden calf, that's a demonically inspired, energized religion that they had learned about in Egypt. And so when they're sacrificing to the golden calf, they're sacrificing to demons. That's uh, what lies behind that false religious system. And they're identified as gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So we are still involved in spiritual conflict. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, I always like to point out here that he doesn't say to attack or to rebuke or to charge or to stomp on. I saw one deliverance guy on TV one time act like he was stomping all over the devil. Standing is a defensive term. This is, he, you're designed to stand your ground and let God go on the offense. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who is on the offense for us. We are to stand our ground, putting on the armor 
and hold fast. We're to uh, do like uh, William Baird Travis did at the Alamo. We're to take up a defensive position, but hopefully we won't be overrun like they were at the Alamo. Paul goes on to say, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, obviously, there was antagonism. Paul's the one, remember, who's been uh, beaten with rods three times and whipped by the Jews uh, many more times and thrown in prison a number of times. He's certainly been opposed by flesh and blood human beings. But Paul recognizes that the ultimate enemy are not the the human beings. They're not the Democrats. They're not the liberals. They're not the progressives. They're what's behind that which is the real enemy, which is the forces of Satan that are influencing the human race with these evil and horrible ideas. So Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So this tells us a little bit about spiritual warfare, and that's what's going on in Israel in chapter 5. Now, we need to learn a few more things about Dagon. I just want to run through a couple of different things. He was a, a West and, and um, Western Semitic and Mesopotamian deity. That means that the cultures in Canaan up through Syria and across the Fertile Crescent, over down through the area of modern Iraq, all through that area, areas that later were known as Persia and Babylon and Assyria, all of those areas were deeply steeped in the worship of, of Dagon. After Saul was defeated by the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. So, so before I go to that point. So what we're seeing here is that these territories are really under the control of these demonically inspired religious systems. And then God is bringing uh, the Israelites into that territory in order to establish a beachhead to create this counterculture kingdom uh in this land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there is not only the physical warfare component that's going on between the human empires that's really described in a lot of the visions that Daniel had in Daniel 2 and in Daniel uh, 7 and uh, Daniel 8, but that that this is uh, it representative are represented through these these battles within these uh, or with these religious systems. So the Philistines are fighting against Saul. Uh, we're going to see the Philistines are a problem, as I said earlier, all the way to the end of Second Samuel. And Saul is defeated when we get to the end of First Samuel. He's defeated at Mount Gilboa, and he is uh, he's he's killed by his armor bearer because he's already probably fatally wounded, but he doesn't want to be captured and tortured by the Philistines, so he. Uh, he tries to get his armor bearer to, to kill him, and he won't do it, so he falls on his sword. And afterwards, when the Philistines uh, uh, get his body, they take his armor, they decapitated him, and they placed his head and his armor, guess where? In the temple of Dagon at Beit Shan. I know there's anybody here. We went up there. Do we run up there this year or not? That's another time. Run up that tail there, Beit Shan. The, 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 the Decapolis, the Greek city is down below there, but you, we, we've climbed up and looked at the ruins up on top of the tail before. 
And this is described in 1 Chronicles 10, 9 and 10. And the reason they put Saul's armor in his head in the temple of Dagon is to show their power over Saul, their power over Saul uh, and the Israelites and the God of Israel. We know that the cult of Dagon continued down through the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there's evidence of that uh, in First Maccabees chapter 10, verses 83 and 84, when the Maccabean high priest Jonathan burned down the temple of Dagon at Ashdod about 150 years or so before the time of Christ. At, uh, the Dagon cult lasted at least until 50 B.C., and there may have been some remnants of it even up into the New Testament period. Now, an older view, uh, looking at this, this is where it gets kind of fun, gets kind of interesting, ties some things together for you. An older view was that the first three letters, D-A-G, in the name Dagon, related to fish, because the Hebrew word for fish is dog, D-A-G. But And that was set forth by a couple of medieval rabbis. Uh, Rashi, that's the acronym for Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki, and Rabbi David Kimchi. Now, for those of you who've gone through some of these Israel studies with me, you won't remember their names, other than they sound kind of weird when you talk about uh, uh, Rashi and and David Kimchi. But these were guys who lived right around 1,000. Rashi lived just about that time. Kimchi lived a little bit later. And these guys basically retooled Judaism to completely remove Messianic prophecy from the Old Testament. I mean, between those two guys, they basically got rid of that. So that's one reason uh, they're they're significant. But in terms of this study, they both uh, put forth the view that Dagon was a fish god. Now, no evidence has ever been found to indicate that. Although uh, Dagon is probably, on basis of other evidence, viewed as the god of grain. And that could be possibly a connection with fish because fish were used for fertilizer. We still use fish for fertilizer. And that would fit because Dagon is part of the whole fertility cult, which in an agricultural society, people are concerned about uh, their crops and uh, having a lot of fertility and productivity the next year. And so they would engage in sexual acts with the ritual prostitutes in order to try to motivate the gods to make their crops uh, uh, productive during the uh, during the coming year and what was interesting now if you've ever read this book by Hislop on the two Babylons very popular book written back around the turn of the century we've got a whole history in Protestantism that where we're very hostile to Roman Catholicism and Roman Catholicism has often been viewed by Protestants as the mystery Babylon the false religion of the end times and uh, one of my favorite little posters I saw last week when the Pope was here was uh, just said very simply, very succinctly, Protestants, ignoring the Pope since 1517. But sometimes we wonder, where do they get these interesting costumes? Where do these things like some of these hats come from? And this is a picture here of the mitre, you see it on these uh, cardinals here in the lower right. Uh, you see it on the Pope up here. It's this hat that has this odd-looking shape to it. Well, in the ancient world, 
the priests of Dagon wore a hat just like that. Isn't that interesting? Now, Hislop in his book, you know, argued that this was in the shape of a fish, maybe or maybe not, but this picture here, this picture in stone here from the Assyrian period, uh, this, this diagram up here, these diagrams here, these are all in stone. These are ancient artifacts showing that whatever the origin of this hat was, these were, this was the kind of, of headgear that the priests in the mystery religions of the ancient world, the fertility religions of the ancient world wore. And as Roman Catholicism developed uh, after uh, the time of, uh, of Constantine, and it began to spread throughout the, uh, the Levant and throughout the area of the Mediterranean and on into uh, other areas, they would just absorb ideas. They would assimilate to the pagan religions. If they went to some town and they had ten gods and goddesses, they would suddenly become saints. And they would, the saints had the same, uh, would be associated with the same things that those gods and goddesses were associated. So if the god was the god of good luck or the god who would help you find things, then the saint would be a similar name and he would be the saint who would help you find things and things like that. So the, a lot of things, a lot of the ritual, a lot of the accoutrements, a lot of the costumes, that are worn by the hierarchy in Roman Catholicism just came right out of ancient paganism. Anyway, I just thought you'd be interested in that. So you see this coming coming from uh, from, Dagon, uh, from Dagon. Now there was a large temple of Dagon in Mari, which is located in the area around the Euphrates, not far from from Babylon and Hammurabi. Uh, conquered uh, Mari, we discovered about. Um, about 2,000 or uh, 20,000 cuneiform tablets from Mari that uh, do, that even though they don't talk about biblical events, they give us a window, a picture into the ancient world between about 2800 BC and 1800 BC. And what is described in these cuneiform tablets from Mari is pretty much fits with the kind of culture the Bible describes. But Dagon was very popular in Mari, and there was a huge temple to him that's dated to the 1700 period, the 18th century uh, B.C. Dagon is also mentioned about a century later in the Amarna letters, which was a collection of 350 cuneiform tablets from around the time of the conquest and the judges period, and it included correspondence between rulers in Canaan and rulers in uh, in Egypt and some of the other uh, nations surrounding uh, Canaan. A temple to Dagon was discovered in Ugarit, which is located in uh, the northern part of the country formerly known as Syria. And uh, who knows what it's going to be known as later, but in it, or if the, the remains there, Rosh Shamrit, that's what's to tell where they discovered all this, if this will survive, if ISIS captures it, all these wonderful artifacts are destroyed. So we see that Dagon was extremely prominent in the ancient world. He's also, as I said earlier, he also was uh, the temple in Gaza, uh, which uh, Samson destroyed after they put his eyes out in Judges 16.21. Dagon was the god of that temple. But what's interesting, if we uh, went to Judges 16, I'll just put the verse up here. 
Judges 1623, after they uh, cut off Samson's hair and they they blinded him, they put his eyes out, and they uh, then they got together and had kind of a little victory dance. And they, verse 23 says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, notice this, this is really tweaking God's nose, okay? They said, Our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. Now that's just like throwing down the gauntlet for, for God, and so this is where God is going to get back at them in uh, the, in this particular chapter. What we see also, is far, just in terms of background, is that the ark represented the military power uh, of Israel. It is God is not equated to the ark, but God is viewed, that the ark is viewed as his throne. He is the God who is enthroned upon the cherubs. So the ark manifests the presence of God, though God cannot be limited by space and time. And in Numbers 10.35, we get the instructions given for holy war. Now, holy war is often misunderstood. There is a biblical doctrine of holy war, and it was the instructions that God gave to the Israelites to destroy every man, woman, and child, in some cases all of the livestock of the Canaanites. And God had given them from the time of Abraham in roughly 2000 to the time of the conquest in 1400, almost 600 years, to turn to him. God is a God of long-suffering and a God of grace, but instead of turning to God, they had become more and more perverse. They had developed these religious systems where they are uh, sacrificing their children alive in the fiery furnace of Moloch and Chemosh and these other gods and goddesses. Goddesses, they are uh, engaged in all kinds of perverted sexual ritual uh, to placate their gods. It was one of the most perverse and destructive cultures in all of human history. And if we think about this as as somebody who's got cancer, and this is a, 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 a very virulent form of cancer that needs to be destroyed. It can't be completely eradicated or cut out, but as it reaches certain stages, it has to. there has to be radical surgery in order to prevent immediate death. And that's the analogy. God allows these things to happen treats these cultures in grace, but when they reach a certain level of perversion, like with Sodom and Gomorrah, they have to be destroyed in order for the human race to uh, to survive. And so the instructions are given for holy war. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. So at this point, they're going into battle. Let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And then when it rested, that... He said, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So there's a time for war and a time for peace. It didn't just go on. So that was holy war. The Bible recognizes two types of war, holy war and just war. And just war, as it's indicated, is when a nation is involved in war in order to protect itself from uh, attacks uh, from the enemy. So this is what has been going on with the Philistines. And now they've defeated Israel. God's allowed that to happen. And they take the ark of God. Notice, when the writer is writing the story from the perspective of the Philistines, 
because he shifted his vantage point now. Before, he's talking about Israel going into battle at Aphek, but now uh, they've been defeated, and now he's looking at things from first the vantage point of of the Philistines and the vantage point of God. So when he's talking from the vantage point of the Philistines, the ark is always called the ark of God. But when he talks from the vantage point of truth and the vantage point of Israel, it's called the ark of Yahweh, the ark of the Lord. So he says, then the Philistines took the ark of God. That's how they viewed. This is just another God. They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and they took the ark of God, put it in the house of Dagon, and set it uh, by Dagon. So it's now a servant of Dagon. Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they set it in its place again. You have to prop up your God. In all false religions, you have to do something to prop up your God because he doesn't, he can't pull through, pull through for you. So this God is down on his face worshiping Yahweh and they have to Set, set him back up uh, on, on his feet. And then they get up the next morning. The next morning, they arose early the next morning, and there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark. But this time, God said, we're going to make sure that you're not going to prop him back up again. So the, when the angels came in and uh, knocked him down again, they cut off his hands and decapitate him. It's a very violent picture here. Dagon has had his head cut off, his hands cut off. Why do they cut off the hands? Because you're, you're, you, you've become disarmed. That's where that term comes from. You can't carry a sword or a spear. You can't fight in battle if your hands are cut off. This was one of the ways that the uh, uh, Canaanites would practice disarmament when they defeated an enemy. Uh, and the Israelites practiced this when they defeated Adonai Bezak at the beginning of, of Judges. They cut off his thumbs and his toes. Well, you can't hold a spear or hold a, 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 a sword if you don't have thumbs, and it's hard to run and maintain your balance if you don't have your big toe. So that's what happens. God defeats him. He falls on his face to the ground to, in a posture of worshiping the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both palms of its hands are broken off and they're put on the threshold. And only Dagon's torso is left. Now, I don't know how clearly you can see the picture I have up there, but it it clearly shows that here's the head and here are the hands that have been cut off from, uh, from Dagon. I thought that was a great picture. So... You have this interesting thing that goes on with the threshold that gives rise to this superstition to never step on the on the threshold. Temple thresholds in the ancient world were considered worthy of respect because they separated the sacred area from the common area. And also there's a scene from Judges 19. We've talked about this where the woman who's the, the uh, a concubine of the Levite and uh, you have a scene that's reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah where everybody in town wants to gang rape this uh, Levite's concubine. And finally, in a very ungentlemanly performance, he just opens the door, throws her out to the mob, and shuts the door. And she's abused all night long, and she's just at the point of death. She crawls back to the door, and she has her hands on the threshold. And this is a depiction uh, that she is is pleading for her life. And so this is the imagery behind this in the ancient world was this the uh, 
the threshold is a place where where you are you can plead for your life and reach uh, a certain level of security. Now the next thing we see here, getting into verse five, I'll take I'll, I'll wrap up before we're done. We'll get through the chapter. It's a pretty simple story. The priests, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house, tread on the threshold of Dagon to this day. That's just explaining the the origin of this. That they viewed this somewhat su- superstitiously. And then it goes on in verse six. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. That means that God is just knocking the stuffing out of these people. Now, I don't know what the population was there, but they're starting to experience some rapid deaths. They're they're having a plague in the city, and their population is being decimated. And there's nothing that they can do about it. The hand of the Lord is heavy against them as as an idiom for the fact that God is taking them out. He ravaged them which indicates they're dying, they're suffering miserably, and he struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, tumors is in the New King James Version. The Old King James translated it hemorrhoids. We always have a lot of fun with that. And But there's a reason for that. And some other translations translate it as hemorrhoids. What's interesting is there's an addition to this text that shows up in the Septuagint and the Vulgate. Now, what's important about that? In the ancient world, when you get a couple of ancient texts that uh, disagree with the Masoretic text, you ought to pay attention to it because it's a strong likelihood it was part of the original. And this would make sense in light of what's going to happen. So the Septuagint and the Vulgate add this following statement, And mice multiplied in their land, and the terror of death was throughout the entire city. Now, this has caused some people to think that, well, what we have here is something like the bubonic plague, that that these tumors would be uh, large abscesses or something of that nature that are would be like the bubonic plague is called that for, because these these kinds of cysts or tumors are called buboes. And so uh, this was what was going on here. Now, here's the uh, Hebrew word ophel which is translated emeralds. I'm not sure where that comes from, or hemorrhoids. And uh, it is also a cognate of the Arabic word, see on the last line, aflun, ophul, aflun, you can hear a similarity. And the Arabic word means tumor or a boil of the anus, which is where we get the idea of hemorrhoids. Now, that's about as graphic as I'm going to get, but it was pretty painful. God is... Well, God is really kicking them in the rear end. <laughs> he is really taking advantage of them. So this is a lot of fun to imagine all of these Philistines, and they're just having problems with these anal tumors. But they've got some kind of disease that's going on that is killing them, and their the population is being decimated. So finally the men of Ashdod get together and say, we got to get rid of God. He's too much for us. So... The ark of God of Israel can't remain with us. His hand is harsh toward us. Dagon's our God. Let's get rid of Yahweh here. And notice they always call him the God of Israel, not Yahweh. Therefore, they sent and gathered themselves. They got everybody together, and we're going to have a huge uh, meeting and decide what we're going to do with this ark of the God of Israel. We can't give it up because if we do, that means we admit defeat. If you own the, the God of the enemy, you won. 
He was your servant. But if they give him up, that's that's massive. That's admitting defeat and admitting that Israel uh, really won the battle. So they're going to take him to Gath. So this map shows us the route. He went to Ashdod first, and then the ark went to Gath, and then up here to Ekron. Then it's going to be sent back to Israel. But basically, it's interesting, neither Ashkelon nor Gaza that's further south are mentioned in the text. Gaza's probably not, because they're still dealing with this this, uh, reconstruction project of the, the Temple of Dagon down there. And uh, they were all messed up because of the influence of, of Samson. So what happens? So the, the ark is, is taken, and they say, we're going to send it to, to Gath. And so they send it to Gath, and the people at Gath weren't too excited about it, I'm sure. And so after they carried it away, the hand of the Lord was against that city, according to verse 9. And he struck the men of that city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. So if it's something like the bubonic plague, then it is just going from one town to another, and the Philistine population is being decimated. So now the men of Gath say, we can't keep this thing here. They're going to send it to Ekron. So they send it to Ekron, and um, and the people of Ekron say, why are you sending it here? This God's going to kill us. So they again have a meeting of all the lords of the Philistines, and they decide that they're going to send it back, uh, let it go back to its own place so it doesn't kill our people anymore. And the text says there was deadly destruction throughout all the city, and the hand of God was heavy there. Their population is being decimated. And notice the last verse. The men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. What do you think about that? It goes up to heaven. That's not where Dagon is. Yahweh's in heaven. The God of Israel's in heaven. Dagon's not in heaven. He doesn't live in heaven. So that's what's interesting, is that God has gotten their attention, and they want deliverance. But it's it's going to come, but it's come at a cost to them. And we'll look at the further travels of the ark when we get into chapter 6. Now, just uh, to tie it up, to get tie it together here at verse 1. Now, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. So think about that. That would be, this is the 10th month. So from last March until now, you'd be going through this kind of devastating plague where you were losing maybe 40 or 30 or 40 percent of your population due to these horrible um, tumors or boils or hemorrhoids or whatever they were. God just has a great sense of humor in the way he defends himself. He doesn't need our help. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. May we, may we be reminded that you are more powerful than any religious system, any political party, any, uh, any false religion, and that we do not need to fear any of these things. That as we watch world events that we can relax knowing you're in control and you are allowing things to develop the way they are through your permissive will in order to bring about your in-game plan for human history. Our responsibility is to be faithful in being a witness and in proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And we pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to do so. In Christ's name, amen.